as they're doing that, if you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 26. That's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, So Matthew 26. And specifically, uh, I want to look with you at verses 1 through uh, 13. I'm sorry, 1 through 16 this morning. So that's where we're going to be. So if you can find your way there, that would be helpful. Uh, The title of today's message, if you want to share with anybody or find it for yourself later, uh, is called Wasted. Now, I don't know. I I don't want you to condemn yourselves. So I'll I'll, I'll say it for you. Uh, I'm sure many of you have heard of the game Grand Theft Auto. If you haven't, then you're going to hear about it this morning. If you're my age or younger, I'm sure that you have. If you're older than me, then maybe you've just heard the stuff in the news about it. Uh, I'm sorry to tell you I used to play the game Grand Theft Auto, and I'm also sorry to tell you I I would not recommend you letting your children play that game. Um, I'm not even sure what what the premise of the whole game is. I know that when I was playing the game, pretty much the only thing I would do would be steal cars and shoot people. Now, I used to play video games, and uh, I think video games can be okay. For me, they weren't okay. For me, sometimes they took precedence over the other things in my life. And for me, that was not time spent well. Instead, that was time wasted. But the reason I think of Grand Theft Auto in particular when I think about video games and wasting time is because Grand Theft Auto had this interesting end screen. You know how on Mario Brothers... Everybody knows Mario Brothers. When you die on there, it's like that, or however that works. Maybe that, that might have been the sound for Price is Right when you get the thing wrong, actually. I'm not sure. <laughs> but, but, but here's my point. On Grand Theft Auto, when you would die, it would show up this screen that would say, Wasted. And also, before I was a Christian, I remember having conversations with my friends, and I would say things like, Hey, let's go get Wasted. And when I think about life apart from Christ, I think this is a good word for it. I think any life spent apart from Christ is really a life wasted. And as we look in the text today, we're going to see what the disciples thought waste was, at least one of them, and we're going to see what what not wasting actually looks like. So again, if you have a copy of God's Word, I want to take you to Matthew 26. And as we look at verse 1 there, we're going to go through this. It's going to take us some time to get through it, and then I'm going to give you all three of my points all at the end. You guys okay with that? So he says, when Jesus finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, now I want for you to understand here the context, this context is king when we look at scripture. So this is right after his Olivet Discourse. He's on the Mount of Olives, right? And uh, he says this to all these folks. We just talked about that last week. And now it says when he had finished all these sayings. But this terminology here is more powerful than I think we sometimes realize at first glance. This is not just the finishing of the Olivet Discourse. This is the finishing of all of Jesus' discourse until after his death, burial, and resurrection. And so when it says here in the text that Jesus had finished, it's not just that he'd finished these sayings, it's that he's begin, he's, this is the beginning of the end, if you think about it. He is finishing his earthly ministry before he is about to go and then be the substitutionary sacrifice. And so this is Jesus', in essence, his last words to his disciples. This is his last act with his disciples. And so he finished all these sayings. I also want you to see here that nothing of Christ was ever 
wasted. It says here that all of his sayings, meaning if you ever doubt, is there anything more that Jesus could tell me? Is there anything missing from the Bible? Brother or sister, absolutely not. It says here that Jesus had finished all his sayings, and it says that he has finished his sayings. And if you know the scriptures, then you know that there's going to be a time period where Jesus is going to declare on the cross itself that all things are now finished. And so as Jesus starts out here, as we start out looking at this, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, he reminds them again, verse 2, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And I think at this point, still some of them doubted this. I think some of them still thought, no way. He's crazy. That's not going to happen. But who says it? We've covered this time and time again through Matthew. Jesus says this is going to be the case. And, and here's the other interesting part, too, and I, I want to take you forward in the text a little bit here. He, he says, listen, you know, he says, you know because I've told you multiple times. And so I want to ask you this morning, what is it that you should know by now? What is it that Jesus has told you through Matthew that you ought to know? I hope one of those things is that you should know that Jesus loves you. And I mean absolutely, unequivocally, undeniably, unmeasurably loves you. And as John 3.16 says, since he so loved the world that he took the cross for you. God the Father sent the Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So there's two things you ought to know. One, that God absolutely adores you and that two, that he wants to be with you for all of eternity and the only way to do that is through his Son. And so he says, you know, these disciples, you should know that in two days the Passover is coming. Why should they know that? This was a huge event. Every Jew around there was coming. They would travel for miles Miles and miles to Jerusalem for this event. This was the feast of the Passover. Do you guys remember that? what that is? That's, that's the time that Moses was bringing them out of Egypt. This is the time that the angel of death was visited on the enemies of Israel, the Egyptians, during their time of slavery. This is a time commemorating the movement from slavery to freedom. This is a time commemorating God's sovereign protection and rule over his people. And how did they mark the doorpost? Do you remember? The blood of a lamb. They would slaughter a lamb. They would take the blood of the lamb. They would put it over the doorpost. And then they would feast upon that lamb. And that was the Passover feast. And so all these Jews were coming back to Israel, to the temple, to commemorate this Passover. There would be old grandmas and grandpas telling the stories of their ancestors walking along or riding in the cart alongside of their grandchild who would be asking them about their heritage, about their people, and why it is that they do Passover. Kind of like your kids in very little time are going to be asking, why do we do Christmas? Why do we have Christmas? Why do we meet at grandma's house? Why can't she cook the roast right? You know, all these questions. But all of these Israelites are coming for this feast, for the Passover feast. And he says, you know it's coming. Of course you know it's coming. You're good Jewish men. And the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Jesus knows his time is coming. He knows that it is on the Passover that the Lamb who God has provided is now going to be slain as the ultimate 
Passover lamb. The ultimate blood shed for the forgiveness of sins, for the angel of death to pass over, for us to move from death to life. That's what Jesus says. And then in verse 3, it says, and you can almost, you know, meanwhile on the ranch or fade to black, you know, change scene. The chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in a place of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas. Now think about this. These are supposed to be the religious elite. These are supposed to be the respectable among them. These are the elders and the chief priests. These are the supposed to be the creme de la creme of the Jewish society. Not only the ones that are there to serve the people, but mainly chief priests, what are they there to do? They're to serve God and give access to the people to God, right? Because it's still the temple. They can't go in there. They're relying on these priests. These are the people that are meeting together In verse 4, they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. What a cowardly way to go about it. In verse 5, but they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Well, man has one plan and God has another And we know, as history is a teacher, that Jesus was right. That it was on the Passover that he was taken. But I also want to point to you here, what is it that they're concerned with? Are they concerned with the glory of God? Are they concerned that if we do this on the Passover, it's going to create a crowd which is going to steal attention away from what is really the most important thing during the Passover? Do they care that really right now is a time where everybody should be focused on God's deliverance and instead they would be changing their focus on this criminal that they're going to arrest? Is that what they care about? Or perhaps perhaps what they care about in the text is the people's worship. They know that the people should be worshiping God. And how can you go to the temple and worship God and give alms and honor and songs of praise and the things like we do today that are born out of this kind of early church tradition and Jewish tradition and some of these ways that they go about this? And, and do they care that the people are then going to be drawn away and sidelined to watch something else rather than view the sacrifice of the lamb on the temple mount? No, it says here that they are afraid of the people's backlash on themselves. And so these men, who are supposed to be the religious elite, the religious leaders, they are wasting their office. They are, in their own essence, viewing their office as not something to, to be protected, but rather to be protected from the honor that is given to somebody else. They wanted to arrest Jesus because Jesus was more popular than they were. They wanted to take Jesus out because he was taking attention away from them. And he was taking their prestige. But as we look at this, we can see that this is Jesus' plan from the onset. It might have been perpetrated by the leaders of Israel. And of course, then they are not innocent of shedding his blood, but it was understood by God the Son and preached by God the Son, and it was uh, ordained by God the Father. So this is all part of God's plan. And so as we might see it, or as they might see it, as we might look at Jesus from a human perspective and see him, all this great teaching and all this miracles, and then him dying on the cross, we might say, what a waste, and boy, would we be wrong. But in verse 6, 
you know, fade back to black, back to current where they're at. So Jesus is there at Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. We don't know exactly who Simon was. Scripture isn't clear about who that is, but I like to imagine that it's somebody who Jesus healed. I like to imagine this is somebody who was plagued by leprosy for so long that his name in the community actually became Simon the leper. (laughs) And that Jesus, in his grace and his mercy, healed this man. And so this man's uh, homage to Christ was, whatever you need my house, Lord, it's here for you. That this is where Jesus would go because he knew he would be accepted and loved and and appreciated. Not that Christ sought those things, right? Because he came to serve, not to be served. But it was Simon's joy to have him in his midst. Commentators will say that maybe Simon was a, a husband or a father. It doesn't say that. But I love to hear and think about or imagine that Simon was a broken man made whole by the love of our Savior. Either way, the text goes on to say that's where they were at. And a woman came unto him, or up to him, uh, with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment. She poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. Now, in other Gospels, we know this to be Mary. Mary, the sister of Martha. Mary, the sister of Lazarus. In the other Gospels, we know that this woman, Mary, came up to him with this alabaster flask, which is this... uh, clay kind of jar kind of vessel that you couldn't open unless you snapped it open for it to open up and so it was a one-time use thing and it says that this was very expensive ointment now in other gospels you can read and it can say and it can tell you that it was 300 denarii approximately that which doesn't mean a whole lot to us but if you've heard a sermon about this before the preacher may have told you that or i'm going to tell you right now that this is about one year's wages So if we adjust that for inflation right now, I don't know, but it was 300 denarii. It was one year's wages back then. And so you have this woman, Mary, who by all understanding that I have, according to scripture, doesn't seem to be married. So she's coming to Jesus with this flask of one year's worth of wages of pure nard, it says in another gospel, pure nard, this expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head. And in another gospel, it also says that it was at his feet. And so in my imagination, as they reclined, they were kind of laying down. That was very common, and that's why they wash each other's feet, because who wants to eat a meal next to somebody's nasty feet, right? And so they were laying down on their sides, and, and in my mind, Mary comes in. And, and now think of Thanksgiving at your house. Hopefully Thanksgiving it's at your house is, is, a, is a good celebration, most of them are, and if not, then I apologize for that. But I'm going to think of my Thanksgiving at my house where there's laughter and there's joy and there's conversations, probably several, right? You have these couple people having a conversation at this end of the table. You have these people having a conversation at this end of the table. Um, and, and, and then it's almost as if that, that time where grandma or grandpa or mom and dad for you or, or whoever brings out that turkey or that roast and then a hush goes over the crowd. This is the way I picture what happened with with Mary in this time. They're having this Passover. They're eating this meal together. And then Mary comes out and unbeknownst to everybody, kind of sneaking around the outskirts because she's not looking for glory either. Uh, Mary comes over to Jesus and she snaps off the head of this flask, which in the crowd probably wasn't even very audible. But then the smell hits them. And it was a fragrance of beauty. 
And again, Scripture doesn't tell us this, but if Mary was single, I wonder, I wonder if this was Mary's gift as a bride, that she would use this on her wedding day to anoint herself, to make herself fragrant for her groom. Now again, this is, this is my imagination running away with me, but I imagine this, the way that this would work. And so she starts at Jesus' head, and she's pouring out this ointment. Scripture tells us it's about a pound, three-quarters of a liter worth of this ointment. So it's like probably like kind of a lotion-y. And she's pouring it out, starting at his head. And this pungent aroma starts to fill the air. And everybody just gets quiet and watches this thing that's happening in front of them as Mary is pouring out a year's worth of ointment over Jesus and then goes down and finally gets to where his feet are. And the emotion of it overwhelms her and she begins to weep. And she falls at Jesus' feet, beginning to, to weep as she rubs the ointment into his feet and as she cries over his feet. And Scripture says that, it, that she takes her hair and begins to wipe her tears off of his feet. And that's the scene. And then verse 8 says, And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. That word means angry or annoyed, irritated. And one of them, and again, another one of the Gospels tell us it was Judas, uh, says, why this waste? Now think about that for a minute. This woman is seeking to honor God, honor Jesus. And provoked by nothing other than her love for her Savior, she takes the one thing that is to her her most valuable possession. And she brings it and gives it all to him. And she's met with her peers and those who are also supposed to be disciples and who are supposed to love God say, what a waste. I hope that someday you get to feel what Mary feels in this text. If you do, you will be blessed for it. I also pray that none among us would ever say what these disciples say or think in this text. For if we do, we do not know the value of our Savior. And it says here in verse 9 that this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Think about what one year's worth of wages would have done. Let's say one denarii, or, or however you pronounce that, is one day's wages, which I think is what it is. So 300 denarii is worth a year's wages. You could have fed one slave every single day for a year on this wage. Or you could have ser- served 300 slaves right for one day on this wage. But the other scriptures tell us that even though Judas says this, it wasn't because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he had charge of the money bag and he used to take things out of the money bag for himself. And so really what he was saying is, is, hey, I could have had some of that. But Jesus, aware of this, aware of their heart motive, aware of their thought life, aware of who Jesus really was, uh, aware of everything that was going on, 
and more aware than they, he said, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Now is Jesus saying in the text here, I don't care about the poor, serve me? Absolutely not. And you have to remember, as we judge these fishermen, or Judas, uh, now Judas obviously had poor motives, but it says that the disciples here, so it has to be more than just him. These are fishermen. They may have never seen this pure nard in their entire life, let alone that much of it. And to see that in their eyes poured out on Jesus, to them, that is a waste. But Jesus corrects them, and he says, listen, what she has done is beautiful. It's beautiful because it was done to me. It was beautiful because it was unprovoked. It was beautiful because it was unasked for. It was beautiful because it was out of her sheer love for Christ that she did this. Unprompt to, unasked for, it was her desire. And verse 11 says, For you always have the power, you do not always have me. Beloved, I want to tell you there are some acts of service to Christ that we can do any time, and there are other acts of service that come but once in a lifetime. And it is often the once-in-a-lifetime acts of service that we get cold feet on and don't do. It's often the one-time acts of service where we then question, is this actually something I should do or is this a waste? Praise God that Mary doesn't ask that question. And not that she's looking for this, but, but I want to show you what she receives from this. He says, in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. She probably didn't know that. How could she have known that? Maybe she just trusted Jesus at his word, saying, in two days I'm about to be crucified. It could be that. It could be that she knows that when a criminal dies, that they aren't given the same rights as a regular Jewish man when they die. Because regular Jewish men, when they die, this is part of the custom. Their bodies are anointed. It's like embalming for us. And so it's what you do to take care of the body. Maybe, maybe somehow because of her love for Christ, she had some kind of intuition by the promptum of the Holy Spirit that perhaps she knew that this was the time to do this beforehand. Either way, we know that Jesus saw it for what it was. Jesus says this is exactly what she was doing. She was preparing me beforehand, anointing me as the anointed king over Israel, the anointed Messiah, the one who is prepared to die. And verse 13 says, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. I don't know if you know this, but we see Mary three times in Scripture. Three times we see Mary in Scripture, and all three of those times, do you know where we find Mary? We find her at Jesus' feet. One of the times we see her at Jesus' feet is when Martha is seeking to serve food, and Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his teachings. And Martha says, Jesus, tell her to come and help me. And Jesus says, no, she's picked the better portion. Another time we see Mary at Jesus' feet is when her brother Lazarus had passed away and Jesus comes. And Mary goes, Martha goes out to meet him right away and says, hey, if you would have been here, then he wouldn't have died. And a little time later, Mary is asked for and she comes out and instead of standing before him, she falls at Jesus' feet and begins to weep. And because of that tenderness, Jesus also then is moved and 
and raises Lazarus from the dead. That was his plan all along. But And the third time we see her is when she is worshiping at Jesus' feet. And so we see Mary having wonder at the feet of Christ and weeping at the feet of Christ and worshiping at the feet of Christ. And we see her receiving then three things, her blessing being given, her burden being lifted, and her best being heralded. So for the rest of history, wherever this is, her act will be told. And in 1 Corinthians 11.15, it says that a woman's hair is her glory. And so not only this priceless item was laid at the feet of Christ, but also everything that would be considered her glory, she gave to Christ. And the disciples said, what a waste. The story wraps up very quickly at the end here. It says, then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest. So again, fast forward in time, he goes to these people who are having this meeting and he says to them, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver and from that moment on he sought the opportunity to betray him. Now in the text here, there's some things that you need to understand. One is is that the chief priests had already decided to do this later. But because of this man's love, not for Christ, but because of his love for money, because of his greed, he goes to the chief priest and says, listen, he's a wash. What can I get out of this situation? Because he's probably thinking several things. This is the man that I was going to follow, who was going to kick open the doors of Rome and, and kick the pontiff off and, and be the new king, the King David, and, and now he's saying he's going to go to Jerusalem to die. Well, he's either right or he's wrong, and so I'm going to get something out of it. If he's, if he's really the Messiah, I'll take these 30 pieces of silver, and uh, no harm, no foul, I'll get the 30 pieces that I would have taken out of the denarii from, from the thing that would have went into the basket. If he isn't the Messiah, well, then at least I'll wind up unscathed because the chief priest and all those people who are going to put him on trial will know that I'm the one who delivered him, and so I'll get 30 pieces of silver. You see, but the, the waste was really this. Jesus was a disciple. Jesus, or Jude, Judas was a disciple. Judas had walked with Jesus. Judas, in all probability, had been giving the power to heal, the power to perform miracles, the, 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 the power to, to set captives free. He was probably in the group of people that Jesus sent out. And instead, what Judas says is he says, hey, Give me 30 pieces of silver, which in Scripture we know that that is the price of a slave. How apropos that Jesus would have been sold for the price of a slave. And so I just want to ask you, as you look at this text, you tell me, what really was the waste? You you know, in fact, in the text, it says that the only one would be lost is the, the son of perdition. And that word perdition is the same word that's used for waste. So when we think so little of Christ that we have some things to keep back, when we think so little of Christ that he is not worth the fullness of our lives, then that is a life really that has been wasted. So here are my three points I told you we were going to get to. The first is this. I hope in this text you see the all-surrendering generosity of love. 
when we see Christ for who he is, when we see Jesus for what he has done, when we see ourselves through the eyes of a Savior, through the eyes of a holy God, when we know and can comprehend what he has done for us, there is absolutely nothing that is too big, too good, too marvelous for our king. Absolutely nothing. This is the all-surrendering generosity of love that Mary had, and that is why it is going to be talked about wherever this gospel is preached. Secondly, I want you to see here the all-consuming character of greed. It is for the greed of men's accolades that these priests want to kill Jesus. It is for the greed of financial gain that Judas turns over Jesus. I believe it's often for our greed that we don't do more for Jesus. Whether it's giving of time or money or physical goods. I believe that if we're honest, there is some point where we think of the options of those things and we say, hey, maybe that's a little too much. Or maybe if I did that, that would be a waste. And the last thing I want you to see here is the all-comprehending wisdom of our Savior. He knew the hearts of these individuals. He knew the goodness and the glory of this gift that this woman had given. He knew that Judas was going to go and betray him. He knew that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. He knew that he would suffer, that he would die, and he still came, and he came for you. And he knows your hearts this morning. And he knows, I believe, that if you love him, that this sermon has touched you in this way, that your heart is right now saying, Lord, I long to give more to you. I'm not just talking about finances. I'm talking about, Lord, let me decrease that you might increase. And so I want to close by making a statement that... uh, If you don't really listen, you're going to tell me I'm being unbiblical. So, listen, are you ready? If what Mary has acted out, if what Mary is doing, if what condition Mary's heart is in is considered wasteful, then it's with a new terminology that I would say to all of you, brothers and sisters, let's get wasted, right? I mean, if that's what this looks like, then I don't know about you, but I want to be wasted every single day. In the eyes of the world, sold out to Jesus is a waste. But Scripture tells us that nothing given to Jesus in love will ever be wasted. So let's pray. God, our Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you have showed us the difference between what is waste and what is worship. God, I pray that in a world where we do need tangible things, where we, we have been given stewardship over real tangible things, God, I pray that you would help us to understand and discern, that you would protect us from this consuming greed, that you would encourage us in the all-surrending generosity of true love, that you would give us your wisdom that you have, that you have spoke over Mary, that you would also speak that over us and you would help us to get to a place where we, in the eyes of the world, would be wasted for you. Because nothing is a waste that is given to you. 
And so it's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, Let's stand and sing a song of worship.